For our scripture today, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 16? And as you're turning there, just a reminder that we'll be recording a uh, sermon Q&A at the end of this, posting that later in the week. If you use YouTube, you can subscribe to Church on Mill, and then it'll pop up later in the week when it's posted, and you can send uh, any questions that you have into that number that we've uh, put forward several times, and we love to try and address some of the things that come up. If you grabbed one of those blue Bibles in the back, we'll be on page 539 today, page 539. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. We've been working our way as a church through uh, the book of Acts, and uh, we're studying this book because what happened in that roughly 30-year period of time, those three decades, continues to be uh, instructive for what God is doing ever since, what God's doing in our own day. Last week, uh, we saw as the Apostle Paul started his second missionary journey, that originally their plan as a team was to visit all the cities that they'd already planted churches in and to go back around to encourage people, the new believers, and strengthen them in the Lord. But today we'll see that God had more in mind. In that way, it's helpful to remember that we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. And we'll see this morning uh, exactly how he did that. Starting in verse 6, if you'd follow along with me, that would be great. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Misa, they attempted to go to Bethina, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Misa, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, that's a lot of weird names, huh? Uh, When Jill graduated uh, high school just a few years ago, uh, college just a few years ago, um, we took a trip with some friends to Italy and rented a car and attempted to find our way back to pick up the rest of our party in the city of Florence. And uh, finally, we gave up and literally parked the car and walked. So um, it sort of feels to me like trying to find your way around the ancient world when you read these cities and regions because they're so unfamiliar to us, and yet they do contain some significance. Uh, Fergia and Galatia, no, Fergia is not where Fergie is from. Fergia and Galatia are in what we would today call Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And so all those cities that you see listed in uh, verse 7 and then referenced in also in verse 8 are the same region as the cities in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, if you're familiar with those seven churches. This is uh, places like Smyrna and Laodicea and Philadelphia and Sardis. These are all cities that apparently Paul intended to go to to do church planting, but God prevented them in order to send them to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is roughly modern-day Greece, or uh, 
if you would think of it in this way, this is Europe. And so what, what all this geographical jargon means is that God is taking the gospel and he's spreading it from one continent to another. The Spirit, you see, sovereignly planned that this gospel would be for the whole world. What we'll learn about today and for the next several weeks is how the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the news of a resurrected king, moved on from Asia and the Middle East into Europe and ultimately claimed the whole Roman Empire for Christ. You see, this gospel wasn't just for the Middle East. It wasn't just for Asia. Now in Acts 16, God's gracious plan is for Europe too. And of course, historically, we know that the gospel spread from Europe and eventually all the way here to the United States. Now, incidentally, one question you might have is, well, how did the Spirit prevent Paul and his team from going where they planned? It must not be important for us to know because the passage simply doesn't tell us. Sometimes God shuts one door in order to open another. And he has many, many, many methods at his disposal. In 2020, we are certainly familiar with closed doors, aren't we? Like everywhere we turn, we're running into another one. May we not be so torn up over these closed doors that we miss new ones God might be opening in order for us to walk through, individually or collectively, to be faithful witnesses for Christ. Now, as this gospel moves into modern-day Europe, we'll read this morning together in the rest of the chapter about the spread and the first church in Europe. And in order to get a a sense of what happened, I want to read a longer section than I normally would at one time, because uh, Luke, the human author led by the Spirit here, recorded this in such a way that I think it's meant to show us the diversity and the great power of the gospel in what happened in this first city in uh, Europe, Philippi. And so I'm going to read all the way from verses 11 to 40. I encourage you to hang in there and just imagine being present watching as the gospel unfolded. So starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart that day, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you judge me faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. Who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. She kept 
This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowds joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds and fastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that all the prisoners escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. Uh, ancient Judaism was full of prescribed prayers. One of these prescribed prayers was a, a, a daily blessing that was to be prayed by every head of household in the morning. So guys, you could think of this as your toothbrushing prayer. You get up, you get ready, and you pray a set of prayers for the day. This particular prescribed prayer went like this. Blessed are you, O God, you who did not make me a Gentile, who did not make me a woman, who did not make me a slave. Imagine a, a sea of Jewish men praying that prayer daily, and you get an idea of the religious water Paul grew up in. 
That prayer is a far cry from the genuine Jewish faith of the Old Testament. But nonetheless, it had become the normal practice among the Jews for the Jewish men to pray that prayer every day. Now, why bring up such a ridiculous and offensive prayer? Well, in the passage we just read, there is a representative of each one of those groups. Did you catch it? It is as though the prayer that Paul would have prayed prior to his conversion is being undone after his conversion as he presses ahead with the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, there was a woman, that wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. Second, there was a slave, an unnamed, oppressed slave girl. And third, there was a Gentile, a Roman jailer, who was probably a retired soldier. And so we have a woman, a slave, and a Gentile, each being made right with God, each being welcomed into the church in Philippi and becoming her founding members. It turns out this prayer that Paul would have certainly prayed couldn't have been further from God's heart. It's a prayer that God didn't answer. You see, God loves heads of households, yes, but of course, God also loves Gentiles and women and slaves. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all kinds of people. That's what Acts chapter 16 is designed to tell us. This gospel of grace is a global gospel for all peoples. And the true church of Jesus Christ will be made up of some from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Acts 16 teaches us that those who in the ancient world would have been considered outsiders can in fact be brought in by the good news of Jesus Christ. And if they can, then friend, you can too. Amen? Now let's go back and consider each one of these representative people in a little more detail so that we can see just how good God is. First, there's Lydia in verses 11 to 15. Lydia was apparently a wealthy businesswoman, perhaps something of an entrepreneur. Sometime in the past, she had moved from one of those cities that Paul skipped over in Asia in order to move to Philippi. Philippi was a bustling city center. Conceivably, she moved for her business, and it seems to have paid off. She owned a large house, big enough to take in many guests, and she sold a product known for its royalty and opulence. But unusually, it seems that this success had not gone to her head. You see, Lydia was somebody who believed the Old Testament. When verse 14 speaks of her as a, quote, worshiper of God, end quote, that's a technical term meant to describe that she was a Gentile who followed Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And so as was Paul's custom, when he went into a new city, he would go first to those who moat, moat, moat. he went through the moat, <laughs> these masks sometimes get the best of me. 
What are we going to do when we don't have masks and we can't use that as an excuse? Um, the most common way he would move into a city is to go to the people who would be potentially the most sympathetic to the gospel. Now, in Philippi, there was apparently no synagogue. There wasn't enough Jews there. And so he knew to go outside of town to a place of prayer, and he did so on the Sabbath and found Lydia, along with several other women, praising God. That group of women heard Paul and his team speak the gospel, and at least Lydia responded in faith. What a beautiful picture. Because God opened the door for this missions team to go to Philippi, it should be no surprise to us at all that God also opened Lydia's heart to see the beauty of Christ and the white-hot love of God for her in Him. Since our sin is so pervasive and our spiritual death is total, if anyone would ever be saved, there must be a good, kind, providential, sovereign God who awakens the mind and heart to see and desire Christ. And God desires and specializes in such things. And so he opened Lydia's heart. When God opens your heart, you want to hear the gospel. You desire to read the scriptures. You yearn for good sermons. All of that is because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that hearing is what God uses to open minds and hearts to his word. The Lord saved Lydia that day. She heard this gospel. She responded with faith and repentance. And in fact, everybody in her household did. They were all baptized. And the church in Philippi was born. The first church in Europe. Now, as a quick aside, this passage, among many, many, many others, shows that those who paint Paul as misogynistic have misunderstood him entirely. You see, because Paul held to the traditional biblical view that Genesis 1 and 2 give us the pattern for gender, that gender is part of God's good design, and because Paul wrote in various letters that there are distinct roles for husbands and wives in the home, because he insisted that the office and function of elder is limited to godly, qualified, called men, Paul is sometimes misunderstood as being a mere product of a patriarchal age. Today, you can read books that will tell you culture has evolved. Paul was wrong. We've moved on. But in Acts 16, we discover that Paul not only shared the gospel with Lydia happily, but then he took his whole team to stay with her home, at her home for some indefinite period of time. As Lydia welcomed the team into her home, Paul welcomed her as his equal. They were brothers and sisters in Christ, united around the table of the fellowship of the love of God. And right from the beginning, Lydia's impact was felt. It's 
traditionally understood that Lydia probably held the church's early meetings in her home and thereby became the house for the very first church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the continent of Europe. Now, moving on, if we look at verses 6 to 24, we learn about this unnamed slave girl. In nearly every way, she is the polar opposite of Lydia. Just for example, let's consider this financially. Lydia was wealthy. Lydia had a big home. Lydia had her own business. But this girl was so poor, she didn't even own herself. And far worse, she was oppressed by demons. Now, in 2020, in the West, you may consider that to be nuts. But the Bible is very clear that there is an immaterial world all around us. And that immaterial world is ever bit as real as the material world. And the two are constantly interacting with one another. I imagine that many of us would do well to think about that more often and to pray prayers like are found in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the armor of God more frequently. Many of our issues may not be principally physical, but rather spiritual. Now, this girl from Philippi was not only oppressed physically and economically and psychologically and emotionally, but she was spiritually oppressed too. As a result, she had a demonic ability to tell the future. You see, just like God is the ultimate power, there are counterfeit powers. She had an ability from Satan and his demons to tell the future. Within walking distance of Church on Mill this morning, there are multiple places you could go to go see a fortune teller. I imagine some of them are just full-on 100% sham. But it might be that some of them actually do have a power to tell the future. That power is designed to make much of Satan rather than the one true God. Instead of helping her, this girl's owners knew this and they exploited her. It is a horrific fact that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And this love of money can lead even to enslavement and merciless oppression. But here's the good news. Demons and greedy slaveholders are no match for Jesus Christ. You see, by the power of the risen king, through the words of Paul, this demon was removed and the unnamed slave was freed. In the Gospels, Jesus often would do this kind of ministry. And many times when he would cast a demon out of someone, they would immediately drop everything and become his followers. Or he would send them now as his disciples to go into the world and declare what God had done for them. Certainly we're expected here to see this slave girl in that light. She was no longer a slave, 
but one freed from oppression and thereby able to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and welcomed into the church of Jesus. That means that she and Lydia, who had been so far apart, were now sisters, equals, family. And finally, consider with me uh, something of this Roman jailer in verses 39 and following. If you've ever been to San Francisco, I hope you stopped in the neighborhoods of Chinatown or Japantown or Little Saigon. These are fascinating little communities. And if you were, were blindfolded and plopped down in one of them, you would likely have a difficult time knowing if you were there in the actual country or somewhere else. Philippi was like that. Philippi was a little Rome. Though far geographically, the city's inhabitants took great pride in being like Rome, being the Rome of the East. Philippi is where lots of Roman generals would retire. And so it's no surprise that here in this city is an official Roman jail with official Roman jailers. After an unjust beating and wrongful imprisonment, Paul and Silas were singing and praying. We'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, think about how different this guy was from both Lydia and the slave. He would have been part of the elite class. He not only had rights, but he had the ability to enforce them. And he most certainly would have been someone who believed his Caesar to be a god. When this Gentile jailer came to after the earthquake, he assumed the prisoners had all escaped. And it was the custom in the day that if you were the jailer and the prisoners escaped, then your life would be taken. That's why he drew his sword in order to, in a dignified way, it would have been thought, take his own life. But Paul and Silas intervened. There in verse 30, as a result, he cried out, what must I do to be saved? So clear, so compelling, so otherworldly was Paul and Silas's godly integrity that their holy lives demanded a heavenly explanation. That's why he asked, what must I do to be saved? He had seen something in them he did not possess in himself. Friend, that really is the most important question you could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? If you're new to Christianity, or maybe you've been around it a long, long time, on the periphery, and have just been looking in, then perhaps the Lord has you watching or participating here in person today so that you would ask that question. You see, more than a spouse, more than money, more than a better job, more than a coronavirus vaccine, more than social justice, more than a pregnancy, more than a graduate degree, more than new friends, what you most need is to be saved from the just wrath of God. 
How is one saved? Well, verse 31 gives it simply. It's in one sentence, actually. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what it takes. To believe is to agree to certain facts, historical facts about Jesus. And not only to agree with those facts, but to sit down in them, to put your trust in the Lord. It's to see that Jesus is God who came in the flesh, who lived a perfect life in our place, who died a sacrificial death as our substitute, who rose again in victory because the grave couldn't hold him, who rules and reigns from heaven today as the king who will one day return to redeem all his people to be with him forever and to judge those who do not respond in faith to him. Friend, do you, do you see that as truth? Do you understand that is what has happened? Then you're 90% of the way already there. That last 10% is to recognize that because Jesus is that, then you are not in charge. He is. And so will you... Today, if you've never repented and responded to this gospel, turn from a life without Him to Him. If so, then like Lydia, like that slave girl, like the Roman jailer, today you will be saved. If you're ready, you can do that now. If you have more questions, we'd love to talk to you about those. So this is the church at Philippi. It is quite the motley crew, isn't it? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Beloved, may the birth of that church be instructive to us about our own church. You see, what unites us as brothers and sisters is not our worldly commonalities but rather our shared experience of being saved by Jesus. When we know God as our Savior, then all the other distinctives and distinctions that tend to divide us become rather inconsequential. All of society's yearnings, good yearnings for equality, for unity, for justice, these things will never be satisfied by political or police reform. Only the gospel has the resources to change human hearts. Only the church of Jesus Christ can display the equality the world wants. And so may this church be like the church in Philippi, a church where everyone is welcome, regardless of how much they have or what color their skin is or where they're from or what they do. May we share Jesus. And in that diversity, as we share Jesus, the Lord will reach more and more people. May we be a place where rich and poor, male and female, Democrat and Republican, those with PhDs and those with GEDs, all live as family around the Lord's table. And may we see that this diversity is very much part of the plan of God to maximize His glory because although we are not uniform, 
we can share unity as equals in Christ. This is why God moved them into Philippi, and it's why God's moving us out today into Tempe and beyond. Now, very quickly, before we wrap up, will you take a second look at verse 25? And consider what came before it. Paul and Silas have gone into the city of Philippi. They've done absolutely nothing wrong. They've shared Christ with courage and obedience. Sharing Christ is to share a message of ultimate love. The result of this sharing of Christ was a severe, unwarranted, unjust beating, followed by an illegal imprisonment. They committed no crime. They simply preached Christ. And for their obedience, precisely because they obeyed the Lord, they met severe suffering. Imagine them in that cell, having their bodies beaten with rods. They would have been remaining in pulsating pain. Their feet were stuck between boards that stretched them out uncomfortably and their arms the same. While the blood was still drying, these men used their breath to praise and to pray. As I've thought about that this past week, I've wondered, do I love God and trust God like that? Do we? How would you respond? If in your obedience to the Lord, you found yourself in immense suffering, would you become angry with God? Would you doubt Him? Would you think He's not good? Would you shake your fist and say, look at what I've done for you? This is what you do for me? Or would you understand this world is not our home? We have been bought with a price. Our lives are not about us and how easy we can have it and how much we can amass. They are about Christ and seeing Christ known. To respond in any way other than what Paul and Silas did would not only be to fail our Lord Jesus, who faced the same, it would be potentially to miss out on the greatest evangelistic opportunities God may ever give you. You see, it's their response to suffering that led that jailer to ask, what must I do to be saved? Church, is there anybody asking, based on how we're living in this pandemic, what must I do? To be saved. If not, you need not beat yourself up for that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you do need to live different. May the grace and love and joy and power and presence of Jesus so fill your heart that in the coming days you would have a joy that cannot be explained 
apart from your King. And may that lead to opportunities to share of our risen Savior. Will you pray with me? Father, we do ask for all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. And we pray that what you did in Philippi, you would continue doing in Tempe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.